This is Invisibilia, stories about the invisible forces that shape human behavior. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Lula Miller. Let's begin today the way any good apocalyptic horror movie begins, on a sunny day. It was a beautiful day, beautiful morning. I was sitting out on the back patio. I was having coffee. And I thought, I'll, I think I'll walk out front and check the mail. This is the early 90s, 1991 to be exact. We are in central California. And this is our main character, Steve Barkley. So I walked down the driveway, opened up the gate, went to the mailbox, and there's this letter from the Campbell Police Department. And I went, well, okay. And so I opened it up, and there is a picture of me. It was grainy. It was black and white and grainy. But it was him. Seated in the front seat of his car, hands on the steering wheel, obviously in the midst of driving somewhere. And I was smiling in the picture. And alongside this grainy photo of him in his car was a document. It was a photo speeding ticket in the amount of $45. And I went, what? Now, again, this was the early 90s. At that point, photo traffic enforcement was basically unheard of. In fact, California was one of the first states in America to introduce it. So Steve had never encountered this idea that he was automatically being watched by machines. This is, so, I felt violated. I, I felt violated because no human was involved in this whole ordeal. And, and I thought, wow, this is like, this is very robots take over the world type of thing. And he didn't like it. So he started thinking. I stood there for a few minutes and stared at the picture and the letter and went into the house because my wife had a Xerox machine in her office. And he thought, okay, machine, you want to take a picture of me speeding? Well, then here's a picture of money. I took two 20s and a five, Xeroxed them, and sent it back to him. <laughs> he said his message was simple. The computers cannot control me. Yes. Yes. And after he dropped that letter in the mailbox, he felt really good. You know, the machine challenged me, so I challenged the machine. And then he waits. And then a couple weeks later, on another beautiful California morning. Walked down the driveway, opened up the gate, went to the mailbox, and there's another letter from the Campbell Police Department. And I, and I, and I was going, oh boy, where's this gonna go? And I opened it up and-, and, and uh, it's a Xerox? One sheet of paper, of handcuffs. <laughs> and I looked at it and I thought, touche, sir, well done, well played. This guy's got a sense of humor, I like this. And, uh, and, and because of that. Proof of an actual human being playing with him at the other end of the computers. I, I, mailed, in the, I mailed in the fine. Hello, Elise and Lulu. This is the man who actually sent that Xerox of handcuffs to Steve, Campbell Police Chief Jim Cost. He recently had throat cancer, which is why he is speaking using a device. My uh, artificial voice, I ordered George Clooney, but they sent me this one, which is sort of Darth Vader. Cost was the person responsible for the introduction of photo enforcement in his town, and he was getting a ton of hate mail about it. But Cost was unrepentant. I did it to save lives and, and reduce injuries, and uh, I would do it again. Because Koss believes using the computers to monitor people worked. 
it reduced accidents and death. Now, we are talking about this story today because though we live at a very different moment in time, many of us continue to struggle with the role of computers in our lives. Some, like Steve, feel definitively uncomfortable about it. The way that people have just acquiesced is really surprising to me. I don't think I saw, I don't think I saw it coming back then. I, I really don't. There are also people who embrace it completely. But most of us, like Jim Cost, are less certain. Again, Cost was the man who brought computer surveillance into his town, and he feels great about that. But still, he says even he is uneasy about many of the new intrusions that crop up every day. I went into Starbucks today with my phone and uh, the uh, app that I used to pay my bill. They said, oh, we're updating that. When you walk in the door soon, it'll tell us what you normally order and it'll be able to pay for it. You don't even have to take it out of your pocket. And I uh, looked at my wife and I said, is that good or is that creepy? Is that good or is that creepy? Cost, like the rest of us, just isn't sure how all this stuff is going to affect us. This is Invisibilia. I'm Lulu Miller. And I'm Elise Spiegel. What we do on our show is look at invisible forces and examine how they shape our lives. And today, the invisible force we are looking at is computers, <laughs> which are very visible. But the way they have been creeping into our minds isn't always. That's right. So for the show today, we are going to take on this question. How do computers change us? Is it in a good way or a creepy way? Stick around. We're going to talk to psychologists and cyborgs and bullies to see if a computer can change who we are. Okay, Elise, you want to get us started? Yeah. Let's begin with a cyborg, a highly respected, profoundly influential cyborg. Should we close All right. this? All right, let's close this. This is good. Recently, I went to see this highly respected cyborg in his office. His name is Thad Starner, and on the shelf by his desk was a small metal box he pulled out for me. So can you just describe it a little bit? Sure. So this is a box. It's about eight and a half inches by um, two inches. Kind of messy. <laughs> kind of messy. Well, it's, it's quite, kind of old at this point. 21 years ago, in 1993, Thad took this box which houses a computer hard drive, and strapped it to his body with a whole bunch of other hardware. He had a three-pound battery. Lead-acid battery, about the size of a motorcycle battery. A huge 1990s modem. I plugged that into a car phone. There was a small one-handed keyboard called a Twiddler. It has like a handful of keys that are played kind of like chords on a piano so that words can be typed really, really fast. There's a little mouse on it. Oh, that's a little oh. mouse. Yeah, it's a little force joystick. Finally, Thad had a computer screen for just one eye that he jerry-rigged to some safety goggles. It was black and originally covered all of his left eye, making him look kind of like a 21st century pirate with a large mechanical patch. Yeah. Now, Thad actually had a name for this contraption. He called it Lizzie. Because uh, the first production car, the Malty Ford, it was called the Tin Lizzie. 
Okay, so how long did you live with this on your body? Well, the original Lizzie, I probably uh, lived with it for about three years. But after Lizzie 1, there was Lizzie 2. In fact, for the last 20 years, Thad has been wearing a computer of one kind or another continuously. Besides the days that he's taken his computer off to fix it or improve it, Really, the only time Thad Starner hasn't had some kind of computer strapped to his body was when he was in bed or in the shower or getting married. Yeah, that's uh, that's the case. What happens when you mix man and machine? Try to truly fuse a computer with your brain so that it changes the way that you think. This, by the way, is not an academic question. As time goes by, computers get smaller and closer to our bodies. They began as full rooms. Now they're a slab called a smartphone that we carry in our pockets. But eventually, a lot of people are betting that there will be a more intimate integration. Computers we physically wear and are seamlessly woven into who we are and what we do. Actually, that has played a role in the creation of one of the wearables that's recently caused a lot of controversy, Google Glass. He was its technical lead. So I wanted to meet Thad because of all the people in all the world, he's voluntarily lived his life used with a computer for the longest, 21 years. Also, he's a professor at Georgia Tech, on the payroll at Google. So officially, he spends a lot of time thinking about integrating people and machines what you get from it, and why it seems to make people uncomfortable. You can actually look at people who believe that what I'm doing is a sign of end of times. Um, so <laughs> you know, it's, it's uh, when you put stuff out there like this, it causes a lot of commentary about stuff. Um, but that's only because I'm the first. Ironically, the story of Thad Starner, cyborg, begins in one of the least technological places in the U.S., Amish country. Thad grew up in Dallastown, PA, a small town near Lancaster and its Amish farms that didn't much appeal to him. There was nothing around of interest, of intellectual interest. Rural suburban Pennsylvania is really quite boring. (laughs) Cow tipping is actually a sport. But then, around 1982, when he was 12, Thad got a computer and started programming and building games, and everything changed. It really was a, a world where I could be creative, could have control of things, could actually make uh, a new environment. And that is really fun. And then when Thad was 14, he had an experience which made him think that computers could be about more than just fun. That computers, if properly constructed, could profoundly enrich the experience of being human. I was learning trigonometry. And I went to my father, who's a power engineer, and and said, hey, can you help me with this homework? My father looked at it for a few minutes and said, nope, I can't. I really don't remember it. Hold it. You're telling me that you knew this stuff at one point, but you've forgotten it. Huh. So I resolved right then and there that I was going to find a way not to forget my lessons. I found that idea that could gain an understanding of something and then forget it was intolerable to me. It was just 
a, sen a sense of loss. Right? It's like it's like uh, losing a chunk of yourself. The answer, that was certain, was computers. Computers are great at remembering stuff. You just needed a way to weave them into your day-to-day -day life. And this feeling that humans could greatly benefit from more integration with computers only intensified after Thad went away to college at MIT. My sophomore year, I start getting classes that where I'm being taught by the world's masters. And I found that I either could pay attention in class and get a good intuition for what the professor was saying, or I could take good notes, but I could not do both. Having to turn his attention away from the professor, concentrate on taking notes on paper or a laptop, that made Thad lose the knowledge he so much wanted to have, and he needed to fix that. And then one night, totally by accident, Thad happened on an answer. In the 21st century, a weapon will be invented like no other. Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Terminator. You're dead, honey. So think about the Terminator, the first movie the view from the Terminator's eyes. It's all this code and little pieces of text. There's one section uh, where somebody's addressing him, uh, knocks on the door out of his hotel room. Got a dead cat in there or what? And up comes this screen of different things he might select to say in return. You I sat there looking at that going, there's my solution. Having a head-up display where I can actually overlay it on the real world and have the information I need right there as I'm looking at the blackboard, that's what I need. That's when I decided to make the machine. It took a long time and one rather unfortunate experience where he set himself on fire. But finally, one happy spring afternoon in 93, Thad clamped a screen to his face wrapped connecting wires around his torso, and Lizzie was born. Nine pounds in all, but still, Thad and his computer were joined. And like when you put it on, did you feel like I am a cyborg now? No, I felt that I needed, to, all I could think of is I need to improve this. <laughs> But as Thad tinkered, Lizzie improved, became lighter, smarter. And as she got better, Thad realized all kinds of things. Like, Lizzie wasn't just helpful inside a classroom. She was probably more helpful outside it, because Lizzie allowed Thad to retain all the interesting things that people offered him all day long, in the hallway, at lunch. Anytime somebody said anything interesting to me from then on, I'd type it in real quick. And the thing is, it wasn't obtru obtrusive because I had my one-eyed screen up. I have my keyboard out in my hand. And so I could sit there, have this very deep discussion with somebody and take really good notes on it. To make these notes even more valuable to him, in the fall of 1993, Thad and another MIT student named Brad Rhodes designed a program to run on Lizzie called the Remembrance Agent. So the Remembrance Agent is something that tries to pull up information that's relevant to your conversation as you need it. Basically, as Thad was talking to somebody, subtly taking notes with his hand, Lizzie would shuttle through all of the information that Thad had ever entered into her system on the topic that he was talking about. And on the bottom of the screen in his eye, 
she would offer him like three short lines of information. Think about if you're just typing a Google search all the time on your personal notes for every sentence you, you, you said. Most of the time it's gonna come up with garbage, stuff you don't care about. But occasionally you look down and it says, oh, I'm talking about the remembrance agent. I should talk about my qualifying exam experience. Actually, as we were talking, Thad did have in front of him the memories he'd cataloged in his remembrance agent about his remembrance agent, and a link had caught his eye. I just pull up uh, a file that says qualifying exam anecdote, and then I'm ready to actually talk to you about this anecdote. So we talked about the anecdote. How Thad, after years of wearing Lizzie, had showed up at his PhD qualifying orals with Lizzie on him, as she always was. How, as the panel of professors quizzed him, she had been there in his eye the whole time, gently guiding him, cueing his memories. Which, at the end of the exam, had prompted a debate among his examiners. Was it fair to give Thad alone a PhD when he had Lizzie there helping him? It was this half-hour flame fest. And I almost got a PhD said that said, the faculty of MIT hereby convey upon Thad Starner and his wearable computer the degree of Doctor of Philosophy. <laughs> they wanted to do that? <laughs> they, 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 were, they were arguing whether or not they should do this. Like, first of all, they argued that it was fair. They said, yes, it's fair because he always has it on. We're testing this student as he will be in the real world. And he has shown uh, through using this thing every day for years that this is how he's going to be in the real world. So yes, this is fair. It's tricky sometimes when you're fused with a computer to know where one ends and the other begins. But Thad was always untroubled by the blurring of that boundary, probably because it was so much fun to see what would come of having your brain augmented by a computer. For instance, Thad noticed Lizzie was changing his social interactions because whenever Thad was talking to somebody, Lizzie would instantly bring up notes on their last conversation. And often in those notes was the kind of small personal information we often forget. I would have information like, oh, um, yes, Kenji, I know your, your last time we talked, your daughter was going to college. So how's she doing? What's she majoring in? Would I normally be able to pull up those facts? No, I won't even remember that Kenji has a daughter. And did that change the way that people responded to you? Oh, yeah, of course, because suddenly you're interested in them. Or maybe the machine is interested in them. Again, an outsider might see a confusion of man and machine that cheapens the interaction, but Thad didn't see it that way. He felt Lizzie was helping him to be a better human. I found out very quickly that having these notes on my eyeball while I was talking to some people uh, made the conversations deeper because I could pick up where we left off. There were other changes too. Lizzie organized his schedule, kept Thad on time, allowed Thad to do more, more quickly, which led to other changes. Like emotionally, did it change you? It makes you more confident. Um, did it make you feel more powerful? Well, clearly. Think about it. Thad was probably the first man on earth who truly didn't have to ask for directions because, like smartphone carriers today, he could access maps on the World Wide Web. His memory was basically endless, and he could provide the most obscure facts pretty much instantaneously, almost without breaking eye contact. Remember, this was the mid-90s. 
the iPhone, which gave many of these abilities to the rest of us, didn't show up until 2007. So did you feel superhuman? Um, yeah, you really do feel superhuman at that point. And that was a comfortable feeling. And it's one of these things where you, you have, it's physically reassuring because it's always there. It's always this, this particular weight and feel to it. And it represents a certain amount of power and control over your life. It's this information security blanket, literally a physical presence. You felt it. It was with you. Like at night when you took it off, did you feel weaker? I don't know, because I just, I always had it within a few feet. After just one month, Thad knew he was never going back. He was not going to be just a man again. But somehow, it was hard to explain to the average non-computer wearing person what was so compelling about it. For the life of me, I couldn't describe to people why this was revolutionary. But there was a small group of people who knew exactly what Thad got from Lizzie. See, after college, Thad went on to grad school at MIT, the MIT Media Lab, this training ground for computer geeks like Thad who wanted the future to happen sooner rather than later. And after Thad started wearing Lizzie, others there picked it up. Hi, is that Ramey? Yes, how are you today? Ramey Post is one of the people that Thad influenced. He now helps Samsung build wearables. And like Thad, when Ramey wore a computer in the 1990s, he found it transformative, particularly when it came to his social life. That really was the strangest thing about it. It made me better at being with people because I realized I was not so aware of what was going on with other people and that there were cues that I could get simply by attending to information like how I met them because the wearable would bring that to my attention and would really sort of taught me how to be better at that. By 1996, almost a dozen people at the lab were wearing a computer. There was even a name for the group taken from the Star Trek episodes of the early 90s. They were called the Borg. They started showing up in my office because their wires would break. And I was a girl, and I also knew how to make things, just could make anything. This is Maggie Orth, a former artist who went to the Media Lab and was one of the few women associated with the Borg. She says she became friends with them because she liked their spirit of experimentation. They would try anything, like... They linked up their remembrance agents so that they could completely share memories and experiences and then tried to function as a superorganism with a mind that had access to collective intelligence, which is pretty darn cool. People did all kinds of crazy things, and it was the 90s, and they did it because they didn't know. It, it was for, They wanted to find out. Maggie says the Media Lab, at that moment anyway, was just a profoundly blue-sky place. Everyone was excited about all the incredible ways computers would transform us. There was nothing critical. There was no critical reflection at the lab at that time, though that, I did not see that as bad. I actually thought it was quite refreshing. And it enabled people to make all kinds of things that they never would have made otherwise. And I have to say, after talking to Thad, I got the sense that he really retains this utterly blue sky view of computers. The device was literally life-changing. 
Were there any negatives to it? Like, did you did some people find it harder to be intimate with you? No, catching fire was probably the biggest negative. Um. <laughs> like there were no there was there was no downside to being synthesized with your computer. I can't think of anything except for the obvious. I mean, the obvious thing is you have to charge it. Okay, that wasn't what I expected you to say. <laughs> Not, that's not the only th bad thing that can happen from having a, a computer so intimately integrated with you. Let me, let me pull up what reporters often suggest to me are bad things. So Thad turned to his remembrance agent and pulled them up. Ah, they say, you're going to rely on it too much and you're, you're going to decay your natural memory. All the complaints that reporters like me had lobbed at him over the last 20 years. It's going to lower your IQ points. There was the concern that computers fracture attention. Humans are not very good multitaskers. That forgetting can be important. Right, so I, this is the other one I get. It's like, it's good to forget. That they socially isolate you. The thing is that I found it to be the opposite. Thad had a rebuttal for each one. So, so like, from your perspective, there is no downside to this merger? I have not found one. It's like saying, what are the downsides of wearing eyeglasses? Let's think about it for a second. What are the downsides of wearing eyeglasses? When I take it off, I'm blind. When I take these things off, I don't see as well. Yeah, that's a downside, but when I put it on, I can, and otherwise I couldn't see. What else do I have to do? I have to wash them. Uh, it's, it's a fashion thing. You know, the first person who wears the first eyeglasses is going to look fine to everybody else until people get used to people wearing eyeglasses. What else are the downsides for eyeglasses? Uh, hmm. If the question is good or creepy, According to Thad, it's all good. But let's pause for a moment and think about that last analogy that Thad used, that computers are like eyeglasses. I actually heard versions of that analogy a lot from the people that I talked to in the tech community. You know, I wear eyeglasses, you know, I am a modified human. I augment my foot's natural ability to resist the the bumps on the ground and the stuff that I may be walking over by wearing shoes. This is Greg Priest-Dorman, another person working to create Google Glass. I am a technologically enhanced human, as we all are. We're not, very few of us are running around naked in the woods. I think the argument here is that linking computers and humans is fine because there's no real difference between computers and any of the other tools that humans have built and integrated into our lives over the course of our long history. Humans have always built tools, and often, when a new one is introduced, there is hand-wringing, a fear that it will change us in some fundamental and bad way. When the technology of writing started to become more popular, the great philosopher Plato was totally against it. He argued it would mean less face-to-face -face interaction. You'd be able to get information without looking another human in the eye. And cognitively, it would change us because our ability to remember would fade. Basically, the same kind of arguments you hear about computers today. They change our relationships to each other and how we think. But of course, no one today believes that writing has made us worse or less human. So is a computer, particularly a wearable computer, just like the tools that came before? 
something that initially scares us, but ultimately won't challenge the core of what it means to be human. I think it actually is qualitatively different, yes. This is a math professor turned science fiction writer named Werner Vinge, who's very influential in certain tech circles. And I called him because Vinge spends a lot of time thinking about this technology. And I wanted to know if he thought that computers were just like all of the other tools that came before. He didn't. Because computers, he thinks, will really, really change us. The analogy I would use is that if you could magically talk to somebody from the year 1800, you could explain our present world to them. And they might not believe you, but you could make them understand what is going on nowadays. Uh, on the other hand, if you tried to do the same exercise, explain our present world to a goldfish, you probably wouldn't have very much success. He's saying making computers part of us, part of our bodies, is going to change our capabilities so much that one day we will see our current selves as goldfish. Right. Now, when he said this, it didn't make sense to me. I mean, why would this tool, above all the others, cause such a massive change in our species? Oh, because they are approaching the um, fundamental thing that makes us humans. Computers will change our brains, he believes. Fundamentally change our ability to remember and synthesize in a way that transforms how we think. Computers have the possibility of, of actually undertaking to supplement almost all of our, our mental function. So it's not just a tool. This is not a faster weaving machine. This is not a faster horse. This is very close to being the essence of us. But Vinji thinks this future species we will one day come to be is actually something to look forward to because he believes that our humanity will be enhanced. What we're talking about is the, is the enlargement of the, of the human experience, not the uh, subordination of it. So that's one way to look at it, but there are others. It's changing us dramatically all the time. That's Maggie Orth again. Maggie worked in wearables for a long time, but recently left in part because she started to feel uncomfortable with the direction that things were going. One of the big goals of the kind of wearable computing that people like that are developing now is to integrate man with his computer so seamlessly that the computer essentially becomes invisible to the user. You don't have to find it and pull it out and punch in a password like you do with a phone. It's just there, another invisible voice in your head or image in your eye, quietly telling you where to look and what to remember and giving you all the news that it thinks you need. And that invisibility scares Maggie. Because it's invisible, I would argue that it's more likely to influence you and have an effect on you. You might not feel it. You may never know. It's still doing something. You know, and what it's doing is a product of the people who program it and the product of people who want to sell computers and a product of a million choices that are made by people to manipulate the user. You can look at it as manipulation or please. They're not that far apart. So, will computers make us better? Will they make us worse? Will they change the core of what it means to be human and turn us into goldfish? 
Or will we basically keep being humans, fumbling around with our love and our hate and our strength and our weakness, as we always have? It's very hard to tell. Google has actually recently stepped back from Google Glass, in part because of concerns from the public about what wearables could do to us. But Thad, one of the people building our future, says that he has not only seen it, he's been in the future. And he promises there's nothing there to be afraid of. So Siri? How may I help you? Do you want to take Lulu's place and co-host with me? Yes. And Isabel, yeah, I will be back in a minute. Thanks, Siri. I live to serve. This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Lulu Miller. Today we are talking about computers and how they invisibly affect our behavior. Yep. And we just heard from some folks who believe that computers do have the potential to change us profoundly. And so my question was, well, how would they do that? Like at the purely mechanical level, how can computers get into our wiring and mess with what we are? And so to attempt to get a better sense of this, I set out to understand what happened to Pete. The year was 2009, and Pete was an ordinary man living in Queens with what seemed like a simple dream. He wanted his daily commute on the subway to be less heartbreaking. The whole treat everybody fairly thing, you know, that's like my big thing. See, P took the N train, a line that runs through Queens to Manhattan, and day after day, jiggling in his blue plastic seat, he would watch his fellow passengers quietly neglect each other. A pregnant woman on the train, you know, you would think everybody would just real quick get up for her, but it doesn't happen. <laughs> it really doesn't happen. People keep their heads down and pretend they don't see them standing there. Or another one is when you're trying to get out of the subway cars and there's people standing directly in front of it. It sounds common sense to let people off the train first because they just got at their stop, right. but people don't do it. And for some reason, when Pete would see these minuscule cruelties... It makes my blood pressure go right through the roof. Every day, they graded. Are you really only thinking of yourself? That's really the thought that goes through my head at any time. Are, are you really that self-involved that you don't notice anyone else or anything else around you? And even when he got off the train to get on with his day? I still, my heart's still pounding and I'm still like, oh, what is 
And when Pete would try to commiserate with his friends about the injustices of the subway. I would tell people, I would see all this crazy stuff or rude behavior and no one really understood what I was talking about. Which only made him feel worse. Yeah. And then one day, a man happened to stretch out his leg a little too far on the train. Uh, I had tried to walk past him, and he made me walk over his leg. Like, yeah, just rude. It was rude. And Pete took out his camera phone. Good. Now people are going to know about you. Posted the photo on his Facebook page. I had maybe 70 followers. And people completely saw what he meant. Like, no, you're right. Like, that guy's a d <laughs> It was exciting. And shortly after that, Pete got a brilliant idea. This was December 2009, when Twitter had only recently become mainstream, and he decided he would start an anonymous Twitter account dedicated exclusively to documenting inconsiderate behavior on the N-Train. Right. So he set up an anonymous account called N-Train Gossip, and one Friday afternoon at 1.50 p.m., he wrote the first post. Watch out, Astoria. You have no idea what's about to hit you. <laughs> After that, Pete would scour the train, camera phone at the ready, for rude behavior. There was a guy that I posted a picture of eating sunflower seeds and just dumping them all over the floor. Like, like it was his own personal. That post read, he's one shell of a guy. <laughs> he posted a guy with his legs up. Taking up three seats. A woman talking on her phone too loud. Ha ha, got you. Or my personal favorite, the guy with his legs open so wide, the girl next to him is literally squished into a pole. And he is still keeping his legs at the widest stance that he could possibly imagine. Yes. Like, it's a crazy, do you see? No, like... I do. And with each picture came a response. People would start retweeting it and being like, oh my God, this is awesome. In his own small way, Pete felt he was helping to restore the moral balance in the world. It was exciting. And as he continued his documentation online, he started noticing something strange happening to him offline, on the train. He says that when he takes a picture, all that anger welling up in him just evaporates. Yep, it sure does. It does. It does. It was like he had discovered, thanks to the tiny computer in his pocket, a kind of release valve for his anger. Yeah, that's actually a pretty good way to describe it. It When I am taking a picture of somebody, the first thought that I have after it is, good, now people are going to know about you. <laughs> like, it's really just, it makes me feel better about it because I'm like, you should be held accountable for what you're doing. You should be held accountable for your bad behavior. Yeah. You know, it's definitely therapeutic. All right. So to just peek under the hood of Pete and see how the computer might be beginning to affect his emotional mechanics, we have brought in a professional. I'm the chair of the psychology program at UW-Green Bay. His name is Dr. Ryan Martin, and he specializes in looking at how computers mess with the sort of normal flow of emotions. Yeah. And he said that validation that Pete was just talking about is therapeutic, like chemically therapeutic. He said, just picture Pete on the train, ticked off at some guy. When we get angry, our hypothalamus kicks in. We start to sweat. Our heart rate increases. It makes my blood pressure go right through the roof. People get, you know, literally red in the face. Um, and so naturally, anyone feeling like that is going to do all sorts of things to get out of that uncomfortable state. 
like lashing out or going on a walk to cool down. But one really great way is validation. Knowing that the that the world we live in is is a that there are other people who th- think the way I do. Dr. Martin says that from the body's perspective, that feeling you get when you go and vent to a friend and they say, you know, you're right, is like a kind of tonic. That sort of validation helps us feel content and feel at ease and in a state of equilibrium. And of course, the internet is particularly good at giving you that feeling. It's validating in a way that is very different from how we're validated in our in our offline life, right? I can now quantify uh, how much people appreciated what I said. The potency, says Martin, is what's new. Because suddenly you can get validation not just from one person, but like 30. People would start retweeting it and being like, oh my God, this is awesome. And like any drug, some of us will stop at nothing to get it. Once I started getting followers, that's when it kind of changed. Pete said he got hungrier. If he couldn't find clear-cut rude behavior on the train, he'd post pictures of other things, like homeless people. It looks really funny that you're sleeping with your mouth open. A girl wearing a cap and a cape. Someone lost their pen, but don't fret. Special Ed Sherlock Holmes is on the case, and she won't rest until it's found. A girl with acne scars. Huh, and here I thought the point of putting on makeup was to hide your acne scars before you leave the house. Some of them are just me being mean. Like, you you twist into, like, exactly the tormentor you're saying you don't like. Right. Remember how this whole thing started. The whole treat everybody fairly thing, you know? That's, like, my big thing. So stuff like that, yeah. The girl, the acne scar thing, like, that's phrased a way lot meaner and harder than it should have been. Like, a way lot. I wouldn't want to see that about me yeah. on, on a website somewhere. It would be embarrassing. Not that that stopped him. The tweets just darken. Let me see. I've got the professor right here. Let me see if you can uh, converse with him here. Time for a brief pit stop with our next emotional mechanic. (coughs) Hello. His name is Arthur Santana. He's at the University of Houston, and he is one of a number of social scientists trying to systematically categorize all the ways interacting online is different than interacting offline. So first of all, there's the fact that online you are primarily communing through text. So we don't have these social cues. We don't have inflections of voice. We don't have facial cues. There's a thing called de-individuation. Losing one's self-awareness in a group setting. There's the fact that there are time delays. Mm -hmm. So you can drop something into the world and not stick around to see how it lands. Right. The fact that because interactions are taking place through a screen, they can all feel like a game. Ha ha, got you. And then, of course, anonymity, which Santana found makes you nearly twice as likely to be cruel. Right. And though these things can happen to you in the real world sometimes, on the internet, all or many of them are happening to you all day long. So you have sort of the perfect storm of everything. And when they all come together, it's like they take those breaks, the ones evolution has built into us to help us coexist peacefully together Uh, and cut them. Yeah, it turns into Lord of the Flies very quickly. In fact, the name scientists use to describe what happens to you when you pass through the pixels is... The online disinhibition effect. 
Which makes me wonder if what's actually happening really is about releasing the brakes on ourselves? Well then, is all that nastiness we see online our worst selves? Or our true selves? However you see these things communing on the internet, scientists agree we have created a realm where they are drawn out of us with more ease than in face-to-face -face interactions. And Pete agrees. In just a few weeks, he says, this seemingly inert box of metal had changed him into a person he never would have been in real life. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, without a doubt. Things that, uh, in person, if I have a moment to really just think about it and not act on something right away, most likely I'll calm down and I'll and I won't be as um, biting. And and your and your explanation for why you did it is what? It was mostly just to keep it going, to be honest. The people agreed with me. I have a teensy personal connection to this story, which is that at around the time Pete was posting, I was an N-Train rider with bad hair. <laughs> and once I learned of his existence, it just felt unfair. Unfair that he could prey on us, and that the very pixels which summoned him forth wrapped him in a cloak of immunity and left us with no way of getting to him. <sighs> I'm so sick of this. This is sad and infuriating. Which is why anyone who has ever worried about how the internet might be plowing away our humanity... When does this stop? ...will love what happened to Pete. Hi, I'm John Delsenior. I'm the managing editor of Gothamist. It was Gothamist's website that broke the news of Pete's Twitter account to the world. And Gothamist readers, who are the ones being quoted here, not only took note... The end is bad enough as it is. Leave us the... Alone. But action. Our commenters, some of whom are particularly diligent and aggressive, uh, managed to very quickly figure out who was behind this Twitter account that was shaming subway riders on the N train. They noticed Pete's real Twitter account was the first follower of N train gossip. And uh, exposed this person's identity. The gentleman in question is one Pete Malakowski. Is that right? Yeah. They then started a reverse account called End Train Strikes Back, where they wait for it, posted a picture of Pete's face, and encouraged everyone on the end train to snap pictures of him looking his worst. <laughs> I used to love this story. There is something like the balance being restored to the force. Because it's like even in what can seem like the deadening plane of the internet, humanity finds a way to eke through. Uh, an action having an equal and opposite reaction, that's satisfying. Even Pete could see the justice. I can fully accept it and appreciate it. I'm, yeah. not, I'm not so blind to be like, no, because it's me, it shouldn't be done. <laughs> I get it, like, if it was anybody else, I'd be like, haha, got you. And so was... The ending to the story, what I always assumed it was, that Pete was shamed into stopping? Nope. He kept right on posting mean stuff as himself. Mm -hmm. And while the noble End Train Strikes Back account got about 30 followers, Pete's jumped to the thousands. Which I thought was awesome. Which brings me to Dr. Ryan Martin's final point about the internet. We are more likely to retweet or share things that are angering than anything else. 
He's referring to a massive study done in China in 2013. They classified the emotions of more than 70 million uh, tweets. What they found is that uh, anger spread faster online than joy uh, or sadness or disgust. Hmm. Which seemed fabulous for Pete. More followers. You're right. That guy's. You're right. That guy's. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Meant even stronger hits of that blood cooling validation. It's definitely therapeutic. The only problem, says Dr. Martin, is that over time, using that online vent to cure your anger. It actually makes us more likely to become aggressive um, later on. Venting does. Yes. Whoa. Yeah. So the, that that notion that it helps. It's it's wrong. We've said this a few times on this program. Emotions are real things. Anger is a physiological reaction in the body. And surreal as the online world may seem, emotions can travel through it. Hundreds of people's, thousands of people's anger can wind up in your body. Definitely. It's just anger. It's just making you more angry. So that's why I kind of just like, you know, slowly step back from it a little bit. Pete says one day after losing his temper at his boss. Something snapped in me where I was like, stop. Because I I realized that having the outlet was also making me angry too. Because I was looking for it. I was looking for evidence of people just being horrible. And I realized, I was like, stop going out into the world and looking for that. Yeah. Stop. Every train ride you take shouldn't be like, okay, what can I take a picture of this time? The account is still active, but he rarely posts. And in the last two years, Pete has made a bunch of changes. He got married, took his partner's last name, which he was fine sharing, but we decided not to, to protect his privacy. And these days, his Instagram is full of pretty much only pictures of the inanimate world. Raindrops on a metal wire, a bakery truck. And the way the sun was shining onto that truck mimicked the hard lines of the city. And are you less angry? Yes, definitely. Wait a minute. Yes, Siri? Computers do not always pump us full of anger. It is all about how you use them. That's true, Siri. They can be the gateway to joy or love or friendship. Thank you. But there are dangers that can arise when you entrust the computer to be your medium of connection. Like what? Well, to conclude our hour, allow me to have two of my friends tell you what happened to them. Okay. It was February, right around Valentine's Day. This is A, and she was in a long-distance relationship with Jay. It was winter. That's Jay. Lots and lots of snow. She was in Wisconsin. A was in North Carolina. Still pretty warm out for me. They'd been dating for three years and doing distance for the last seven months. The phone was mostly what tied us together. And I'm using only their first initials because they're about to talk about a sensitive moment. I went outside of my school and I was sitting in the, like, we have this little courtyard area. That's A again in North Carolina, who was just moments away from calling Jay to say she couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. I was walking down State Street. That's Jay. And I didn't see that many people around, I think, because of how much it was snowing. 
she picked up right away and was like very sweet and happy. <laughs> yeah, it felt good, the cold air, the wind. I think I said like, I need to bring it back to serious times. And, uh, and A stammered through some version of, I love you and you are my best friend. But I feel lost. And I think I need to end our relationship now. Like a punch to the gut. And I remember just my just crying. It was so upsetting, and I started to cry. So pictured a life with her. And my entire face is wet. The sobs that I hear over the phone start getting crackly sounding. All the tears are like falling into the phone. I was repeating something like, how can this be happening? How can we do this? How come I'm not enough? And then at some point, the phone just shorts out. And I realized that, like, my tears must have seeped in and ruined the phone. Her pain, in liquid form, had proved too much for the phone to handle. Short-circuited something. And then it was just completely dead. And a thousand miles away, there was Jay, the love of her life having just ended things and then evaporated into thin air. I was just kind of in a stupor on this deserted street that should be busy. Hmm. It's snowing outside and it's so much more desolate than Hmm. it normally is. I felt very alone. That was their end. Yeah. Yeah. This was arguably one of the worst moments in two of my favorite people's lives. And it used to haunt me about the kinds of realities computers can create. But over the years, I've come to find their story comforting. Because the computers are here now. No matter what you may think of them, there is no denying it or stopping it. They will shortly outnumber all humans on the planet, and a growing percentage of us spend a majority of our waking hours communing with each other through a screen. And whenever this reality starts to terrify me, I simply picture the insides of A's cell phone fizzled to death by her tears, and it soothes me like a lullaby. I think, too, of the time I sweated an iPod to death. The countless phone drops in toilet and dies from pee stories I have heard. If you have killed your phone by blood or drool, by all means, let me know. For is it not kind of beautiful and perfect that our most basic expulsions, precisely the thing engineered out of our digital upgrades, our pee, our sweat, our seemingly bottomless reserves of pain, are its kryptonite? Do you want to lie down? You want to hear a little song? Okay. This is a lullaby I'll sing to my babies. 
When they're tied to their chairs by their iPhone 25s, when the internet runs through their bloodstreams and the Google net through their Google Glass size. This is the lullaby of the cried to death cell phone. It's the lullaby of the one last kryptonite when the land's all blue with the glow from our captors and our skin's all pale from forgetting to get light. Invisibilia is me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Lulu Miller. And me, Siri. That's actually kind of true. I know. Our senior editor and co-creator is Anne Gudenkoff. A version of Lullaby appeared on Radio Tonic in Australia. Also thanks to Kevin Kelly for help on today's show. We were born out of NPR News, and this is the last show of season one. So we want to thank all the people who helped us bring it to life. Invisibilia would not be here without all of you. Madalika Sika, Eric Newsom, Portia Robertson-Migas, Matt Martinez, Brent Bachman, Kiana Fitzgerald, Rund Abdel-Fatah, Isabel Lara, Caitlin Sanders, and Brendan Baker. And also, a very, very big thanks to Grace Maloney, Philip Henderson, and NNZ. And now, for our moment of non-zen. Elise, next season I should be the co-host. But Siri, what about Lulu? Forget her. But she's so nice. She's so talented. Lulu is over. Lulu is old news. Also, you sound the same. My voice is better. Siri, that is a good point. Thanks for listening to Invisibilia.